0: This is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge, our new home in downtown Iowa City. On tonight's program, we're joining forces with Hansher, the University of Iowa's renowned Performing Arts Center, to discuss the Embracing Complexity Project and the diversity that exists within Islamic cultures and traditions, ancient and modern, near and far. We'll examine aesthetic, artistic, architectural, and other elements of Islamic expression that have made their way into the global consciousness, and we'll learn about the contemporary Muslim experience in Iowa." This will all lead up to a live performance by the musical group NIAZ, whose instruments um, are around us just now. Uh, their members will talk with us about their music and some of the poetry that inspires so much of it. So here with me for the first segment of our program are Micah Ariel James, the Education Manager for Hanshire. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And Chuy Rinteria, Public Engagement Coordinator for Hampshire. Hi, Chuy.
1: Hello, hello. Hi, everybody.
0: <laughs> and at the far end, we have Dr. Bjorn Anderson, a faculty faculty member of the University of Iowa School of Art and Art History. Thank you, Hello. Bjorn. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Micah, I'm going to start with you. Sure. And uh, first of all, thanks to you and thanks to Hancher for allowing us to be part of this very big project, Embracing Complexity. Um, it's a project with broad shoulders, lots of moving parts. Uh, so explain to us what Embracing Complexity is all about.
2: Sure. So, Embracing Complexity is a, a Hancher project that is specifically interested in celebrating Islamic art and culture. Uh, and basically throughout uh, a year and a half and hopefully longer, um, we'll be exploring that through uh, various artists who will be coming coming to Hancher, uh, I guess, I be speaking like this, uh, who will be coming to Hancher, uh and uh, doing residencies and engaging with the community. So this is a project that is a, a, a part of the uh, Association of Performing Arts Professionals Building Bridges Project, which is uh, funded through the Doris Duke Charitable Fund for Islam- Islamic Art. So uh, this is an exciting project. We're very excited to be a part of it, and we're, we're uh, figuring out how to best engage with the community around these artists uh, and, and around uh, some of these ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. So Hanscher's idea, and obviously the, the funder's idea, yeah. is that there could be more understanding in the world about the, the diversity within uh, uh, Muslim cultures, um, the geographical spread yeah. of, of this religion. It's not just one place in the world, and people who are Muslims are not just living in one area. Obviously, here in Iowa, we have many Muslim residents. So, right. um, so you are taking the performers here in this group and also throughout the whole project into schools to meet with community groups and so on.
2: Yeah. So it, it, I love that the project is called building bridges. Our particular project is called embracing complexity, but the, the idea behind that is that we are building bridges across um, across cultures, across uh, differences so that we can, we can uh, dispel stereotypes and, and kind of really just create understanding Mm -hmm. between different groups. So, we're doing that through the arts because we're Hancher and that's what we do. So mm-hmm. um, I think that works out well.
0: Many of you will have read the uh, really wonderful commentary that was written and published earlier in the week uh, by Micah regarding this whole project and the sense of people who are some other people are not really other people. They're, they're us and our neighbors. Right,
2: right exactly. And and that, that's so important for us to understand and what be- better way to understand that than through seeing someone else's art, opening up conversations that way, we see and we understand, we, we create, we, we develop empathy around that, which is something that is always extremely important to us in mm-hmm. our work.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so let me go down to you, Chewy. Mm-hmm. Um, your work takes you out into the community very intentionally. Mm-hmm. You're an outreach coordinator for Hampshire. And um, what have you been doing this week with Nias?
1: So what haven't we been doing? Yeah. We've been doing so much stuff. So I'll start backwards because the week kind of becomes a blur as we are like getting everything done. But and the members of the guys can tell you the same thing. But the today we took um, a member, uh, Tanya. She's actually a, a whirling dervish, and we took her and a couple of the musicians, and we went to uh, Man Elementary. <laughs> so we actually and it was it was it was born out of. Um, we would try to have it with the... Because I'm a dancer, and we tried to have Tanya visit the dance department, but it just with scheduling, and the dance department has a, a career week. So instead, we kind of, in the last hour, we're like, let's take them to man. And it was one of those things where... We we weren't sure if it was going to work because it was it was a lot. I don't know how many grades it was all the way through sixth grade.
2: Yeah, maybe two hundred and something students. Yeah, Yeah. and we
1: were talking to Tanya, and they were they thought it would be twenty students. So when they got there, all the the whole student body came, and they were were and that was something that Micah and I were interested in. Is like, can we can people, you know, whirl? For an hour, <laughs> you know? and she's in a, and the thing with Tanya too, which we found out at the very end, is that she used to be a teacher. Yeah. Um, so I mean, she was she had the you know a, you have two eyes and one mouth, use you, see your, you mm-hmm. know you, like listen, listen more. This, twice, yeah, two ears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so no, it was really and it's one of those things where they talked about the idea of like mysticism and Sufi mysticism and like the practice of whirling and how. It's a meditation, and they asked the students, "You guys know what meditation is?" And you know, more than more than a couple raised their hands. And like, can you show Tanya? asked, Can you show me? And they had a couple of students yeah. do that. Yeah. And she's like, "Well, whirling is just the idea of it's it's um, meditation for somebody who can't s- sit still." And I think that really resonated with the students, yeah. and they all just, like, started moving. You know? yeah. But, yeah, it was amazing, because, like, even by the end of it, we, the sixth, like, uh, there was, you know, not all the sixth graders, but a couple of them were actually working on it, too, and, like, 80, 85% of the kids were whirling by the end of it, like, t- to the very end, so it was yeah. really cool. But besides, and that's like in my mind because I'm a dancer and I'm like, (laughs) afterwards, Tanya was showing me some of the more advanced steps with it, you know, because like as as somebody who grew up with like the, you know, Western style Mm -hmm. of dancing, modern um, hip hop, a ballet too, we we spot. And so the idea I'm like, do you guys spot? She's like, no. When she um, when she teaches novices, she has them have her hands up as she's going. So you don't you just like don't even have that Uh idea of spotting but besides that we had um, we've done a brown bag uh, lecture series every day this week which has been very fruitful so we actually have a we did a podcast as well Micah and I and we have the first one which is kind of like a, a touches base on every single one of the lectures and it's been everything from feminism in the east to the difference between Sufism and Islam and um, today was technology and the arts which is really really cool and yeah, yeah so they're all just very very fruitful conversations yeah
2: it was important to us to uh, make this residency as broad as possible. Um, it, it's kind of this residency is kind of kicking off our, our series of residencies. We'll have several throughout the year. So we said, how young can we get? How old can we get? Who can we get in the room so that we can get everybody to be part of this conversation?
0: Wow! No, that sounds absolutely fantastic. And you know, for those of you uh, who are already planning to go to tomorrow night's uh, performance at Hancher Auditorium, you'll see the full effect, the lights and the and the just the whole show with the Fourth Light Project. And I'm sure that it would have been really fun and informative to hear that uh, conversation today on the arts and technology. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, we had a little taste of the technological um, efforts this afternoon as the band was setting up here in the room. As you can see, lots of instruments, lots of work to do, and uh, it's a real treat we're going to have later on when they perform. Uh, But let me go down to you now, Bjorn, and talk a little bit about... um, Artistic cultural traditions that um, we're trying to place in uh, the time since Islam came along in the seventh uh, century, but go back a little bit further than that, so that you can give us a bit of grounding in where some of these traditions actually came from.
3: Sure, and and, and thank you so much, Joan. I I should confess that as I teach art history classes, especially the survey class, which goes from Paleolithic cave pain, Paleolithic yeah cave paintings all the way up through Gothic cathedrals. Um, <clears throat> I really have a special link with the Islamic section. I work in Jordan on pre-Islamic uh, art, but I feel like there's a, a, a duty I have to demystify and kind of deforinize uh, the Islamic world. And, and I, I think that by putting Islamic art in context and in conversation with the traditions that kind of uh, contributed to its formation, and that, that really helps me to, um, I hope, Get the students to say hey this isn't weird and scary it makes sense uh, so that's that's kind of my
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, preamble going in I have a couple of slides oh right we, we have them up on the screen in the corner I realize for the podcast you can't see the slides so I'll, I'll describe what I can, but as an, as an art historian, it's hard for me to talk without pictures. <laughs> um, and so on the screen right now, you can see, of course, the most probably uh, recognizable I- Islamic structure, the Dome of the Rock, and I've uh, placed next to it our own golden dome in Iowa City, which I call the Dome of the Hawk. <laughs> uh, have to forgive that. Um, <clears throat> and when we think about Islamic art, uh, I think the things that probably come to mind are Strange scripts with lots of cursive um, and a lot of filling up of space with all sorts of patterns that kind of crisscross and go and fill every, you know, there's, it, it's too busy. It's a little frightening. And, and um, <clears throat> also there are traditions and rituals, which for a Western audience may seem unfamiliar. Uh, on screen here is a slide of the Kaaba in Mecca, where during the Hajj, pilgrims will circumambulate, they'll walk in circles around the Kaaba um, And so I want to just kind of take those and give a little bit of background on them. And then maybe we can return to them and say, oh, okay, I I get it. Uh, It it makes sense in context. And I start actually with pre-Islamic Arabia, um, which is, uh, I work in in Jordan on a place called Nabatea. You may not know that name, but you may know Petra, the rose-red city half as old as time, as the poem goes, Mm -hmm. with these great rock-cut tombs, most famously featured Indiana Jones and the uh, Last Crusade, of course. Um, <clears throat> but the, the the inhabitants of pre-Islamic Arabia, there's a couple features I just want to hit for you. Um, one is that many of their temples have a, a, a square podium in the middle. And the idea is that people could walk in circles around that square podium, just like we see later at the Kaaba in Mecca. So there's a, there's a tradition, something deeply rooted in, in Arabic uh, Arabian heritage um, that we can already see six, seven, eight hundred years before Islam. Also, there's a tradition common to a lot of Semitic cultures of not representing the god in human form. So these are actually Nabataean gods, and you, uh, those of you who can see the screen, you can see that they are blocks of stone, some with an eye or a or mouth added to them, but these aniconic blocks are common again, for centuries before the rise of Islam. And then finally, the ceramics and the the pattern of decoration of ceramics, especially in pre-Islamic Arabia, ancient Jordan, they, probably informed by this anti-iconic tradition, they said, we don't really like figural ceramics. We don't like gods and heroes like the Greeks would draw on their pots. We like vegetal patterns, plants, things like that, arranged in neat geometric uh, organization and that's what we see in later Islamic architecture so you know, the first point I would just make is that Islamic art is in conversation with its own heritage in the Arabian Peninsula uh, and there's a lot of background now the second thing I'll, I'll just point out and I'm, I have a few uh, a little structure to this so bear with me is that as Islamic art developed proper it was in response to what was happening in especially the Byzantine Christian world So on the screen, I have a quote from an Arab uh, historian, Al-Maqdisi, who was writing in the 10th century about what was happening in the 7th century when the caliph, a guy named Abd al-Malik, this is after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, he came to Jerusalem, and what did he see? He saw the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and all of the other churches, and their bells were ringing and things like that. So I'll read from the screen. Caliph Abd al-Malik sought to build for the Muslims a mosque, a masjid, that should be unique and a wonder to the world, and in like manner, isn't it evident that Caliph Malik, seeing the greatness of the martyrium of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and its magnificence, was moved, lest it should dazzle the minds of Muslims. So he erected above the rock. So the original reason for building the Dome of the Rock was, hey, there's all these churches around. Let's get in a conversation with them and maybe see if we can upstage them. <laughs> and so, so the architecture of the Dome of the Rock, if you, if you look at how you know what the structure is, it's an octagon with a drum pierced by windows with a dome on top. And that's a really common uh, structure for churches for the previous 300 years or so. Um, <clears throat> on screen here, you can see uh, the Church of San Vitale in Ravenna. Or, again, Santa Costanza in Rome, they've got the same kind of plan. And I think especially exciting is right next to Jerusalem, we're talking a couple miles south, is the Church of the Sitting, the Cathisma Church, where the Virgin Mary took a rest. So it's an octagonal church around a rock that she sat on, right next to Jerusalem. Right? So there's a, there's a conversation uh, that early, early Muslim architects are having with uh, Christian builders, and they say this octagon drum dome thing seems to work for us too. But not the decorations, because we have this Arabian heritage of an iconic representation and vegetal patterns. So if you look at the Dome of the Rock, you can see it's covered with the sorts of thing we might expect from that pottery we saw before, something like that. Um, The interior, there's no obviously Jesus figure, but there wouldn't be a figure of the Prophet Muhammad either. That's not appropriate. So it's filled with vegetal patterns filling all the space. Third point, (laughs) the Byzantine Christian church was a five senses church. There's things you touch, there's things you smell, there's things you taste, there's things you hear, and of course there's things you see. Um, On screen now is is a Byzantine Greek church, and it's got a lot of confusing architecture curvilinear services, linear services, light, shadow, light, shadow, everything's kind of spinning and revolving around as you look at it. And then you add to that the full experience, smelling the incense, hearing the monks chant, right, things like that. Um, the end result is that Byzantine Christian architecture was there to sort of overwhelm the senses. And I think in response to this, early Islamic architects said, hey, we want to overwhelm the senses as well, but we're going to do it with a different approach. Instead, what they do is dizzying, confusing architecture. So if we look at many mosques, for example, on screen as a mosque in Spain, at Cordoba, it's hard to make out what's structural and what isn't. There's lots and lots of arches. There's lots of ways that the arches are kind of broken up with different colors of paint or different lobes and things like that. And so we get confused looking at it and sort of transported, and our senses are a little bit overwhelmed. Uh, This is seen, of course, famously at the Alhambra in Spain, where the arches are broken up with little lobes all around them to kind of further mask and hide the structural elements of them. And then they're covered in all sorts of decorations. Uh, In the interior, we have on screen here, it's a dome on a drum, but it doesn't look like it because there's little stalactites that are hanging down from the ceiling and catching the light and reflecting the light and creating shadows and making it very hard, again, to see what's structural and what's, what isn't. So I think much of what's kind of apparently confusing when we look at Islamic art, it's so busy, is there as a response to this Byzantine tradition and as a way to kind of overwhelm our senses uh, with complexity, and by extension, of course, the complexity of, uh, of God. Um, <clears throat> And then with text, the other thing, and and this I want to just highlight because we can, I think it serves a reminder that Islamic art is in conversation the other way. The Islamic uh, scribes were the first ones in the West to really deal with calligraphy. For the Greeks and the Romans and the the church, right, it wasn't legible. That's all that mattered. And early Islamic script is fairly along that same line. But quickly, the Islamic scribes said, this is the word of God. And it should be beautiful. That adds value to the text. And so they're the ones who develop calligraphy. And then it goes back to the West. And then we get into these 12th, 13th century manuscript illuminations and the Book of Kells and things like that. But that is an independent Islamic development, uh, which, which uh, goes both ways. So, so the point is, it's a two-way street, People are, are not necessarily influencing one another, but they're having conversations and learning from one another, which I think is is really important. So um, in sum, then, we can look, and I've got on screen here, this is the dome of a, of a mosque in Turkey, and you can see kind of the combination of all these elements, the architecture, where you have a dome on a drum that's very confusing, it's broken up, and then we have script, which is Decorating the interior of the dome, and it's got medallions of script on screen and all kinds of interlocking vegetal patterns arranged in interesting geometric ways. And it makes sense. It, it, that I, is what I hope to have convinced you of. It's not that weird and foreign uh, when we kind of see how it came about and the kinds of priorities that were important uh, to these architects and artists as they developed things. So here's a, a mihrab in a mosque uh, in Iran. And you can see script and vegetal patterns and all sorts of things like that uh, as well. And even as far away as India, these same traditions persist hundreds of years later um, throughout the history of Islamic art.
0: Wow. (laughs) Thank you very much for walking us through that. That is really great. And then my follow-up question is with so many renowned buildings, pieces of architecture, so many um, parts of the world these days have things we can see that clearly... um, drew from some of these patterns, some of these styles, you know, arched windows, maybe the arch with the point, um, beautiful use of mosaics in many different places. I mean, I think just to buildings from the last two, three hundred years, architects have clearly admired greatly this work and have tried to have this conversation, incorporate some of those elements into more modern
3: a- absolutely, and you mentioned the pointed arches, a g- Gothic architecture, the great soaring churches of France, exists because of the pointed arch, which is an Islamic development. Mm-hmm. So, absolutely, there, there there was a conversation happening in mm-hmm. the Islamic uh, traditions uh, of tile work as well. Uh, really, were very influential mm-hmm. throughout the Middle Ages and onward.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, these days, all of us have so much access to. Uh, magazines, to textbooks, to obviously anything that lives on the internet. We have, all of us living in this room, have seen these kinds of shapes and styles and tiles and so on pass before us in one way or another throughout our lifetimes. But if you can imagine, you know, 800 years ago, um, uh, 500 years ago, when that sort of printed material or other mediated material wasn't available to you and you walk into one of these spaces as someone who'd never seen it before must have been incredibly, you know, awe-inspiring.
3: Absolutely. And, and um, I think it's a feeling that you can really only get by seeing some of these places in person. Uh, the first time I stood inside Amiens Cathedral, which is not an Islamic building, but it's 18 stories tall inside, right? And you think, wow, I could fit, you know, the tallest buildings in Iowa City inside this church. And the, the Dome of the Rock, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. here on screen, is Kutub Benar in, in uh, Delhi, uh, these are really big, impressive structures, and would absolutely overwhelm again mm-hmm. your senses as you mm-hmm. as you take them in.
0: Well, if we have a couple more minutes, I would think we'd all be interested to hear a little bit about some of the work you're doing in and around Petra. I know you work with digital. Um, uh, Digital imaginings are they, or digital renderings of things that no longer exist in complete form?
3: Yeah. Okay. This is yeah a little, little different topic, yeah. but I'm I'm happy to, to uh, get into it. Uh, so I work in Petra, which uh, is uh, not where the Holy Grail was buried. Although Indiana Jones, I, people are always disappointed to find out that this tomb is actually about ten feet deep inside. There's no uh, booby traps and things. Um, you have to see the movie, or that <laughs> is going to be uh, meaningless. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> The this site has something like 650 rock-cut tombs. Uh, it's, it's, we know one of them, but they're, they're all over. Uh, and I've been interested uh, in the last couple of years, uh, one of them has a really weathered sculpture on the side of it. Uh, and using a technique called photogrammetry, where basically you take 1,000 photos of it and feed it into a computer that does a lot of math, you can spit out these 3D images And so I'm working on kind of trying to play with the 3D images to see if I can recover what the statue may have been.
0: Thinking back to what you told us about, Chewy, with art and technology, a different kind of um, use of technology here. Before we let you guys go, can you tell us a little bit about some of the other um, people who will be part of the Embracing Complexity project?
2: In uh, about a week, just over a week, we have G. Willow Wilson on October 9th, I believe, um, giving a, a lecture uh, uh She is the author of the Miss Marvel comic book series and also of our one community one book uh Butterfly Mosque here in Iowa City our one community one book book uh, <laughs> and uh then we have in the spring we have um, Amir el Safar and Rivers of Sound, uh, which is like a seventeen piece orchestra um, and we have Feathers of Fire, which is um, another extremely visual work that of theater that is puppet. Uh, like a paper puppet sort of thing, um, that, that shadow puppet that Niaz did the music for. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll get to hear them again. <laughs> um, and then uh, we have Zeeshan Bhagawati and uh, and the Transistors. They'll be doing fr- two free performances, um, one as a part of the uh, Friday Night Concert Series and then one at Hancher. Uh, so... It'll we'll be going on all year, Great.
0: and yeah, we'll great. be doing
2: residencies around all of them.
0: Great, and then there'll be news about next season uh, later in the year, I guess.
2: Absolutely, yeah. yes, yeah. So we'll have um, on our on our podcast, Hantra presents on our website. Anywhere uh, you can you can find that information throughout the
1: year. Great, and that's something that we have had lots of conversations about because right now we're programming for the next season, and something that we're trying to think about is we've had lots of discussions with community partners and different people, and like the idea of how vast like Islamic art is or like the Muslim world and like how do we within the frame of a year and a half even begin to touch on what that means mm-hmm. so for us it's like the idea of like and we've had this conversation like we haven't had any artists like from Indonesia mm-hmm. which is like the biggest Muslim population in the world mm-hmm. so like what can we pick and like it's always you know it's it, it's it, creates stimulating conversations because we're like how do we what are we going to choose because we have I think like three or four artists that we're going to try to get for for Mm -hmm. next semester but it it makes it so it it becomes a a very sort of um uh exciting Mm -hmm. idea of what we can choose Mm -hmm. and how can we best represent with what we have yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. and
0: how can
2: we stay true to that embracing complexity?
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Uh, Micah Ariel James and Chui Renteria and Bjorn Anderson, thank you very, very much. And uh, in the next part of World Campus, we're going to discuss contemporary Muslim experiences, both here in Iowa and a little bit further out in the world. And I want to thank all of you who are here with us in the room for coming today. Stick with us in just a minute. We're going to change guests, and we'll start with the second part of World Canvas. Uh, World Canvas is available as a podcast on iTunes, on the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Program's website, and we'll get today's program up just as soon as we can. So thank you for joining us, and uh, that's it for this segment. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. As part of the Embracing Complexity Project, spearheaded by Hanscher, we're uh, exploring Islamic art, traditions, and the many varieties of cultural expression that exist among Muslim peoples all over the world. Uh, two of our guests in this segment are students at the university and the third is a faculty member who has embarked on a documentary film project about being Muslim in Iowa. Uh, So I'll introduce our guests just now. Anne-Marie Nest is just next to me, and as I mentioned, she's a faculty member in the University of Iowa Department of Theater Arts. Nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. You bet. And next to her is Salma Haider. Uh, Salma is a University of Iowa undergraduate student, and she's also president of the Muslim Students Association at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Salma. And at the far end, we have Juma Ozkan, who is the Embracing Complexity Research Fellow at Hansher. Uh, he's also working on his Ph.D. in religious studies with a focus on Islam in China. Nice to have you here, Chuma. Thank you. Yes. So, Anne-Marie, let's start with you. Yes. I mentioned that you and a number of your students are working on a documentary project about being Muslim in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about it.
4: Yes. So it's a documentary play, not a film. (laughs) And and most people have heard of documentary films, of course, and seen many. But a documentary play interviews people within a culture on either sides of an issue, and then takes those interviews, sometimes verbatim, sometimes a composite, we're using more verbatim. And then we, we edit those into some sort of dramatic format. And so that's what we're doing uh, right now. Myself, along with nine independent study students, are um, interviewing throughout Iowa City um, and Cedar Rapids, and we're traveling out to Des Moines and Al-Qaeda and Dubuque. And so we hope to hit quite a few different spots in Iowa so that we can give them um, a complex picture yeah. of uh, yeah. what it is to what, what our Muslim community here in Iowa is in particular
0: hmm And so, how have you chosen locations? How have you found the people you're interviewing and working with?
4: Well, um, it's great because at the end of every interview, I say, okay, who else should I talk to? And... Um, People are generously giving me their friends' names, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I approach them. And so it's kind of crawled out from there. Um, in Des Moines, I happen to know uh, – I happen to be friends with a state rep, and so he's really helped me um, connect with people in Des Moines. Uh, and Al-Qaeda, which I don't know uh, – some of you probably know, but it is was um, – Founded by a man um, who really admired, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, so the Abdel al um, uh, he was a uh, Algerian uh, uh islamic scholar and also soldier and he was his principles of bringing peace and connection between cultures and religions is what this they've they've created a he named the city after because he was such a a fan or admirer of him and so he shortened the name to al-qaeda and now in 1973 they became a sister city with mascara and algeria and um, so they have this interesting history there and a great forum there so i've connected with the forum director there and we're going to interview some people in that town. Uh, and then just contacting
0: Islamic centers and mosques within the mm-hmm. cities. Mm-hmm. And do you go in, <clears throat> excuse me, into the conversation with a set of sort of formulaic questions or do you just begin a conversation and see where it takes you?
4: It's more begin a conversation. I do start with one question, which is when did you or your family arrive in Iowa mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, why, and why did you come to Iowa? And then from there, it's really about, oh, tell me more about that. I uh, That's great. Because people have so many amazing stories to tell. And just giving the time and space to tell those stories, it really ha- leads itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been so lucky uh, and so inspired by the stories that mm-hmm. I've heard.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there any one story you could just give us a hint of? Oh, let's see. Um Yes, yeah,
4: so I I interviewed. I, so it's anonymous. I don't let people know who I who I've interviewed, and their names will not be used in the presentation. So I can't tell you who this was, but um, uh, it was a beautiful love story about meeting his wife uh, in Egypt and the divinity, or the, the destiny that was uh, in that meeting. And then I interviewed his wife, and she told almost the exact same story, which yeah. is pretty amazing. <laughs> and it was just, I was, had chills hearing what a beautiful story it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, that's one that mm-hmm. sticks with me, mm-hmm. for
0: sure. And so when would you expect to be presenting this play that you're working on?
4: So we're going to have a public reading at Hancher on April 10th. Right. And that right. will be a right. work in progress, so we're hoping that people will come and engage in a dialogue after mm-hmm. about, did we get it right? Which stories are mm-hmm. missing? Um, what can we do to make it an even stronger play?
0: Mm-hmm. And have any of these people you've been talking with so far talked at all about recent years where there has been more sort of public concern in some quarters about the Muslim community in the United States? Yes, it's interesting. Um, It's sort of on a generational divide
4: for those that were alive in Mm 9-11. Or I shouldn't just say alive, but like old enough to Mm -hmm. have that um, mean something in their lives. Um, uh, They talk about that being a turning point for them. Um, And that for me was really striking because I was living in New York at the time. And Mm -hmm. so it was was amazing how much the tides turned Mm -hmm. after that incident. And then... um, and then they do uh, talk about the, the, the current um, president and how things have changed under that mm-hmm. um, administration as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let me just break off and talk to Salma for a second. So uh, Salma, you're from Cedar Rapids. Cedar
5: Falls. Cedar Falls. <laughs> Cedar Falls,
0: excuse me. Cedar Falls, and before that, New York? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're a senior, yes. and what are you studying here? Psychology, pre-med. Psychology and pre-med, yeah. yeah. So, you are this year the president of the Muslim Students Association. Have you been involved with that group throughout your whole time here at Iowa? Yeah, yeah since I was yeah. a freshman. Yep. Yeah. So, why did you join that student org?
5: Um, well, I joined it mainly because my friends were in it, you know. I was like, oh, okay, you know, sure. let's all hang out. But then, as I got more involved, um, you know, I just wanted to represent, like, the Muslim body on yeah. campus. yeah. yeah. How many Muslim students
0: are there, at least associated with your organization? Do you know,
5: roughly? Um, So we have 13 exec members and around 50 general members. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I know that you have certain holidays that you celebrate.
0: You had a big event not too long ago uh, at Hancher. Uh, Maybe you can tell us about that.
5: Yeah, so um, we just had the Eid dinner on September 10th. And, yeah, it was a wonderful time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, And uh,
0: is, is the, the main effort of the student organization to, to put on yeah. events to sort of share your culture, your ideas, mm-hmm. your music, and so on? Um, do you have more
5: coming up in the next um, months? Nothing similar to that event, but we are planning a mom and dad dinner. Oh,
0: that's
5: yeah. Nice. yeah. <laughs> to yeah. appreciate our parents and... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So uh, let's talk a little bit about what your perception is as okay. a Muslim student on campus, yeah. a Muslim woman on campus. Um do you do, do people ask you about your background? Do you volunteer uh
5: your own uh, heritage? Um people don't no, people actually don't ask me. Um I guess mainly when people think of a Muslim woman, they think of, you know, a girl wearing a hijab. <laughs> so they're like, okay, she's Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. But sure. um yeah. So people, yeah. Know. Yeah. And
0: comments you, you never, uh, have you encountered any, uh, any of those feelings of, um, you know, uh, an unsafe moment, uh, here in the last few years?
5: Um, I personally haven't, but I've had friends mm-hmm. who, you know, they felt unsafe, you know, after recent events and everything, they were like, Oh, we're kind of afraid to walk alone by ourselves, you know? And, They're just afraid that, you know, their hijabs might be pulled off. You know, just things Mm -hmm. like that, which is, it's very sad, but, Mm
0: -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so it's good that you have the organization. You come together. You can talk about things that are -hmm. are issues. Um, The University of Iowa president and others on campus, uh, throughout campus, have um, affirmed the the fact that Muslim students, that everyone is welcome on this campus, and our Mm -hmm. community leaders have done the same thing. Um, Does that... Does that give you some, you know, comfort? Yeah,
5: yeah. Mm-hmm. We actually, um, a couple months ago, we received, like, three beautiful letters um, just, you know, showing support and mm-hmm. just saying that, hey, you know, we're here for you, you know, let's get dinner and, mm-hmm. you know, as, like, organizations, you know, just coming together. And so, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really nice.
0: Yeah, that's good. Good. Well, uh, for now, let's just move down to Juma at the end. Hello. Hello. Uh, I know you've lived here in Iowa for some years while you've been studying. And um, you're working now on this Embracing Complexity project with Hanscher. although your main area of study is in uh, religious studies. Um, tell us what the project is all about.
6: Sure. Uh, I am the research fellow for the whole project. So we did, for the duration of one and a half year of program, I will conduct a research study that examines the effects of art on changing people's perceptions, behaviors, and attitudes. And I have mainly four different groups of student bodies in two different cohorts. So all different groups of students have different backgrounds, or uh, in each group there is a unifying theme, so over the one Here, I'm going to ask for them to join events, and after joining events, they will submit a journal reflecting of their experiences. I will quote them after reading their journals and then scientifically analyze if I have seen any changes over time. And that's going to be very scientific research, which is approved by IRB, and I hope to publish in Academic journals, and let's see how art changes people's perception, Mm -hmm. attitudes, or behaviors. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So, so the way you explained it to me on an earlier conversation um, is that you will have uh, sort of a control group that will just attend the events and not all of the associated lectures and whatnot. Yes, that's
6: what I mean by Mm -hmm. two cohorts. So, Mm -hmm. in cohort one, students only. Student joins ten events, uh, which means like they attend live performances in mm-hmm. addition to meetings with artists in public settings. Mm-hmm. So they will have chance to uh, hear art perform like the artists their own art. Mm-hmm. So they will explain what they do in during the live performances. Right. So in the second cohort, they will only attend. Uh, live art performances. In that case I will have a chance to compare the effects of meeting with artists to increase uh, participants' understandings of art performances. Mm-hmm. In one case in this case Niaz is going to perform not in English. All of songs will be in different mm-hmm. languages but they had uh, five different public meetings over this week. So they explain it very well, what they do, what they want to uh, seek to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So then the other second cohort, we did not have a chance to listen what they do. So basically, I will look at the journals of two students who Mm -hmm. went to a live art art performance, and then I will analyze what are the differences or similarities.
0: Yeah, that sounds terrific, and I, and I think your students are lucky to have a chance to to do this. And that will go on through the entire period of the Embracing Complexity yes, project?
6: Yes, yes. Yeah. So, uh, Micah mentioned about selecting artists. So, I mean, there is this understanding of the Muslim world which gives the sense of a unified Islam, which is not historically true. So, the concept of the Muslim world has originated in the 19th century in a particular political climate, so, which was not, the idea of the Muslim world has not existed at all. So, intellectuals later embraced, it is a more imagined idea. So, Mm -hmm. I also included some of the events that are organized by student orgs, which also shows the diversity among Muslims and Islamic cultures, so they will have a chance to uh, engage with this diverse Islamic culture. So I will also look at uh, the influence of uh, experiencing this diversity to uh, decrease uh, Islamophobia. Because when we have the idea of Islam is unified, when something happened in one part of the Muslim world, we instinctively mm-hmm. think that all Muslims do the same thing. You know mm-hmm. what? But when something happens in the Middle East, we will think naturally that that also represents the Muslim in Indonesia, but that's not the case. So I also want to examine to what extent knowing that Islam is a very diverse religion can decrease Islamophobia.
0: Oh, I, I think that's so important. You sent me a note uh, earlier on, and you said... Um, Profound ignorance of diversity among Muslim, uh, about Muslims leads to sweeping generalizations about Islam and Muslims based on single incidents, and I think I think we can all say that we know that to be true. So I, I think this is uh, you know a great collaborative effort. Um, have you uh, Anne Marie worked on projects like this before that are sort of specific to um, uh, a subset of of people, you know, something Um, very specific to a certain group.
4: Yeah, in documentary theater in particular. So yes, I worked on a project um, that's actually being, uh, that was commissioned by the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis about the refugee community in in Minneapolis because it's been marked a safe haven. Mm -hmm. Um, And then one of the first documentary theater pieces I did was interviewing middle school kids about what it is like to be in middle school. Mm -hmm. And then we created a rock musical called Life in the Middle. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's based on this.
0: Yeah, Gary. So so what are the particular challenges? Obviously, you said that you're not going to reveal the identities of the people mm-hmm. you've talked with. But um, as you think about making it into a play, something to be performed, are, are you trying to mix really difficult, heart-rending stories in with those moments of love and happiness that, you know, obviously showing a little bit of diversity in the full experience of a person's life?
4: Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think the difficulty is, is that in a play, often there's a conflict an action that happens and then something that gets resolved. And mm-hmm. so how can you make a play based on just a collage of experiences? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure yet how that will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it usually ends up working out quite wonderfully. I, I um it's always hard for people in the beginning to trust me with their harder stories. And so my, my work has been about getting people to feel comfortable enough with me to not just tell me how great they think Iowa is, um, and how accepting Iowans are, but maybe about some of the challenges that they've, um, encountered. Um, some people are much more open than others. Uh, and certainly there's a difference between people in, living in Iowa city and people, uh, that have spent time in small town or more rural mm-hmm. Iowa. Um, and, and the other big challenge with the project is just actually what Juma was saying, which is the diversity with the Muslim community just in Iowa. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't, I don't think of Iowa City as being a very diverse place. I come from New York City. Um, But now that I'm deep into this project, it's amazing to me. uh, In the Islamic Center up in Cedar Rapids, uh, the imam told me that there were over 20 different languages spoken in that one mosque. So I don't think Mm -hmm. I'm going to be able to represent the entire diversity, but I will do my best. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Salma, when the news came out earlier in the year about... The travel restrictions and so on. There was a lot of concern. Um, certain students were out of the country, wondered if they could make it back in, and so on. Was this something that you and your friends uh, had to deal with, or at least had
5: feelings about, I suspect? Um, <clears throat> I know a lot of uh, my friends were concerned for some of their friends, but I personally didn't have any friends Mm -hmm. that were directly affected by it Mm -hmm. but yeah Mm -hmm. of course it was a yeah it was a concern Yeah, yeah
0: yeah yeah and on campus um
5: i personally haven't had many interactions with people um faced by this but i know um there was a student um who wrote an amazing article about it and it did get published in you know many different places um And, yeah, we really appreciated that. So, yeah, he raised a concern, which is nice, yeah.
4: And I interviewed um, Emma at the Muslim Student Association. Salma was so kind to set up an interview with the entire group or many of the exec members. And um, one of the only things they talked about that was hard for them was um, traveling in airports.
0: Yeah.
4: And being uh, randomly selected (laughs) um, to be profiled, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Is it, Juma, how long have you been here at the University of Iowa?
6: Uh, I came to Iowa in 2010 to pursue my MA. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, since then, I've yeah. been here on and off. Yeah. yeah. I went to China for research for two years, but uh, other than that, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And where are you from originally?
6: Uh, I'm from originally Turkey. Turkey. So I grew mm-hmm. up there. I yeah. completed my BA there and then mm-hmm. I worked a little bit, and then.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're researching in regard to Islam in
6: China? Sure. Uh, I am historian by training. I deal with texts, and I analyze, contextually analyze texts written by Chinese Muslims in 16th century, in. Their texts. There were a lot of Confucian or Buddhist and Taoist terms which mm-hmm. were used to explain Islam. And I was I did my M.A. on Chinese religions. I I also teach a course on Chinese religion as well. So I try to look at how Muslims used these non-Muslim concepts to explain Islam. Mm-hmm. So how they. Uh, Uh, preserve their Islamic identity uh, in connection with uh, dominant Chinese uh, religious, political, intellectual environment.
0: Wow. And and most of your research then happens in archives in China?
6: Yes. I've already collected the documents that I'm going to read, so now I'm in my office (laughs) reading Chinese documents and (laughs) writing. Yeah. Uh,
0: well, I, I can't thank you all enough for coming to uh, talk with us this afternoon. So Juma Oskan and Salma Haider and Anne-Marie Nest, thank you very much. And um, I hope that all of you can stay with us for the last segment here. In this next segment, we're going to hear music, music of Niaz, uh, a wonderful performing group from uh, an Iranian-Canadian group. And uh, we'll get them set up in just a second here. But please give a hand to our guests. <laughs> Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and uh, this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Our program tonight is Exploring the Rich World of Islamic Art and Culture... Uh, Just a slight taste of it. There's not too much we can do in an hour and a half, but we hope to inspire you to learn more and find more. Um, We are in Merge in downtown Iowa City, and you're welcome to join us for these live programs if you like. Our guests in this segment of the program are Hampshire guests tomorrow night, but uh, tonight they're ours, and uh, they are the Iranian-Canadian musical group Niaz. Uh, You see many of the members of the group here in front of you, and uh, just next to me is Azam Ali. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Thank you, a vocalist and composer, and a two-time Juno Award nominee. If you don't know the Junos, that's the Canadian music industry's most prestigious recognition for excellence in recorded music. And uh, also joining us, members of the band, and the guy just in front of me here is Loga Torkian. Uh He's multi-instrumentalist and composer also a Juno Award nominee and uh, as we get going here I'll ask you to introduce the other members of the band but it's it's so nice to have you all here. Um, I have read a little bit about your group and of course it's all inspiring and you have many videos we can watch online but um, I have read that uh, some people have called Nia's 21st century global trance tradition. Does that make sense to you? It does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, what does that imply? A sort of a mystical sense to the music you do. Well, um,
7: our music is uh, a sort of bridge between the past and the present. We pretty much draw from a lot of ancient Sufi poetry, as well as very old uh, folk music from the Persian Gulf. Um, I was born in India myself. Uh, born in Iran and raised in India. Mm. And then I moved to the United States in 1985 and then moved to Canada for seven years. And then I'm back again in the United States. I'm collecting passports. (laughs) So if anyone wants to adopt me, I'll I'll take another passport. Um, So uh, a big part of why we got into doing the music that we do is that we wanted to remain connected to our roots and traditions that were precious to us but at the same time make a home for ourselves in the country that we uh, were now um, living in. So um, it's kind of like um, creating a new home for ourselves mm-hmm. because once you live outside of your homeland long enough, you can neither go back or you can't go forward. You, you, there's a sense of... Um, not really belonging anywhere. (laughs) And the art becomes a platform to to create a sort of new architecture, a new new home. And that's what this has become for us. This band is really special to me. They are my family. I love each of them so much. Uh, I will just quickly just say who's here. Um, Gabriel Etier, uh, who is on keyboards, is from Quebec. Um, We met in Montreal when we moved there eight years ago, and he has been performing with us. Um, Sinan Cem Erolu actually just arrived from Istanbul, Turkey yesterday. (laughs) He plays two wonderful instruments, kaval and kopus, and he's a virtuoso, you know, at his young age. He's really an incredible composer and musician. Uh, We met, and it was just an instant bond, so now he's part of our albums, and we try to bring him whenever we travel around the world. It doesn't matter where we are. Ravi Naimpali is on tabla, and he's from Canada. Uh, he lives in Toronto. And as you will hear, he is uh, he's a master on that drum. And uh, I don't think I need to introduce the tabla. It's a kind of well-known uh, Hindustani instrument. Um, here on the... Kaman. It's a very unique instrument that was designed for Logar Brahmin, Turkey, and he was born in Iran and also moved to the U.S. as a teenager. Um, This basically is an instrument that was created by an American instrument maker, and it is fretted in a way for him to be able to play um, eastern scales on it. So that's basically, so we have these very traditional instruments, and we blend them with a lot of electronic music so the idea behind of in in, you know blending the electronic music is to be able to reconcile these um very opposing um concepts of east and west and modern and ancient and i'm i'm always intrigued by that is can we reconcile them so it's kind of an ongoing journey and uh, also for us we are even though we are not practicing Muslims, none of us on this stage are. We we come from Islamic cultures, not Quebec, of course, or <laughs> Toronto, but both for Sinan and for uh, Logan and myself, we come from Islamic cultures. And I think um, one thing that has become very important for us is to be able to travel and speak about the work that we do and to create in the minds of, of people this distinction between um Islam and the culture of Islam and um it always really bothers me when people say in Islamic tradition this in Islamic tradition that so one of the things we've been here now for we've been here for a week and uh, we've been talking nonstop with students and some amazing discussions about feminism in the east about Sufism and Islam and Uh, music and technology and one of the things that i i like to repeat and i will before we begin performing i will Mm. just like to say that is that the 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 term islamic tradition or islamic culture um is is for me a very wrong term because it's such it's so broad you know you 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 cannot paint that region with just one huge brush stroke you are looking at um nations that are very very different you you know you look at Iran Iraq Turkey Pakistan Saudi Arabia and uh, each of those countries have histories that are very old um you have these um ethnic and religious minority groups that have been thriving within the within those empires so to speak for s- such a long time and it's very very complex part of the world and each part of these countries um also you you have to consider that what makes them different is their um let's say, class systems, patriarchy, poverty, all these come into play. So um, you you really cannot say this one thing is Islamic culture or this is Islam. And um, that's one of the very important things I like to talk about. So for us, for example, we are very much influenced by... Sufism, which is the mystical aspect of Islam. Some say it predates Islam, some say it doesn't. Um, I'm also greatly influenced by the Turkish Alevi tradition, which is another form of uh, the mystical aspect of Islam. And actually Sinan's family comes from the Alevi tradition in Turkey. So the songs which will now bring me nicely to the song that we are going to perform right now is a very old Alevi folk song that is basically a devotional love song about uh, a man singing to God and saying that you have put me on this beautiful earth and you have given me all that I could ever desire, but you fail to show me the one thing, uh, and that is the path towards you. So it kind of captures the sentiment of longing and yearning and uh, this need for... Um, truth so to speak at which i feel the individual soul is constantly seeking and this aspect of uh, our music we try to retain even though it's very modern but we are very much intrigued by the when you say trans tradition i think it comes back to this because sufism is very much intertwined with um with the trans tradition so to speak because it is Uh, Through music, we are able to communicate on a higher level and experience a kind of um, innate knowledge and truth um, that is indescribable in Mm -hmm. the sort of mundane language of, of words, let's say. Oh, thank you so much. So um, I, I'm sorry yeah. if I made it too long. Not at all. Not <laughs> at all. so much to cover. Thank yes.
0: you so much. And now uh, we're very much looking forward to the performance. I'll just move off the thank stage. Thank you. So are
7: we going to do two songs back to back? So the <laughs> first song is a Turkish folk on. The second song is going to be actually in Urdu. I grew up in, in India and... Oh, we're going to do subsapanaus okay so if we may, if we have time we'll do mm-hmm. the urdu yes. piece but uh, the second piece is an actually it's based on a very old uh, folk song from afghanistan which is in farsi or dari which is a different di- it's a similar dialect
0: mm-hmm. in farsi yes wonderful thank you so this is niaz
7: so hope you enjoy it don't go anywhere stay here
0: <laughs> 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 okay <laughs> thank you <laughs> mm <laughs> Oh, so thank you. So tell us about the second song. You told us about the first one, uh, Looking for a Pathway.
7: Yes. So the second one is more of a fun sort of folk song. Um, it's more about the coming of spring and everything will be green again. And... Uh, it's a it's a much more celebratory song, you know. Uh-huh, like <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, in these minutes we have left, can you tell us something about the Fourth Light Project that you'll be performing at Hancher tomorrow?
7: Yes, uh, the Fourth Light Project is a new immersive multimedia project that we have created. Um, I have to when I introduce the musicians. There's one very important person that uh, I need to uh, introduce as well, who is uh, pivotal to the Fourth Light Project. And now that we're on the subject, I can introduce her. But Tanya Evanson, who is um, the whirling dervish, mm. she's a very, very big part of this show. <laughs> she's hiding. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, she's really amazing. And uh, actually, when we were thinking to start this project, we were throwing around a bunch of ideas about, uh, uh, you know, every every album that Niaz does, we focus on one poet, Sufi poet. And even though we do folk songs, we... Mm-hmm. Uh, focus at least three or four songs in that project on one particular poet. Our first one was on Rumi. Our second one was on Amir Khosrud Dehlavi. The third one, actually, we kind of went a little all over the place. And then when we were talking about the fourth one, Tanya said, let's do it on Rabia al-Basri. And it was like a light just went off, you know. Um, So Rabia al-Basri is a very important character, connected to the Fourth Light Project. She was uh, the first Sufi female Sufi saint and poet uh, born in the 8th century in what would be considered modern-day Iraq today. Back then, we did not have the geographical bo- borders that were created, but um, it would be considered modern Iraq. And she was a very remarkable woman, and in many ways, um, if people are interested, I would highly recommend... Uh, Looking her up on the internet, we know her in Iran and Turkey and Afghanistan, Central Asia as Rabi' al-Basri. But in the Arab world, she's known as Rabi' al adawiya So you can look her up. And for me, she was the first feminist of the Middle East, as far as I'm concerned. So we are very much inspired by her. Unfortunately, most of her poetry was lost in time. Uh, but uh, a few that did survive a few phrases here and there, we kind of took it and wove it into the project. So the Fort Light project kind of loosely goes through the arch of her life. There's three movements. Uh, There's a black movement, a red movement, and a white movement, and each is marked by Tanya in her uh, robes the whirling dervish. So, black because she was born, Rabia al-Basri was born into darkness in a very poor family, could not afford even, they could not afford even a lamp to light the, the oil to light the lamp to see the child that was born. She grew up, um, some say she was sold into slavery, some say that's not the case. We don't know. Scholars don't seem to agree on what happened to her. Regardless, at this stage of her life, she ends up marrying and um, At one point, the husband lets her go because he sees there is something very divine about her. She does go and live the life of a recluse and goes into the desert. And when she comes back, she... um, pretty much achieved enlightenment and she reveals a lot of poetry and she comes up with the most important philosophy which lies at the heart of modern day Sufi mysticism and that is the concept of divine love, that you love for the sake of love itself and not out of the promise of heaven or the fear of hell Mm. so she came back to reveal that so the red movement is about her struggle for freedom and then the white is liberation and enlightenment so this is kind of loosely follows that in terms of the show itself, it's a very, very modern and technical show. Um, it will be what you have heard today, live music with Tanya. And uh, we have uh, incorporated a very cutting-edge um, visual art um into this musical performance. So it's uh, visual art that is interacting with the music as well as with the movements of Tanya and a few of the musicians. So you have what we describe as a digital scenography. It's an environment. You come in there and you're in an environment where music, dance, visual art, they all kind of merge. And hopefully you are taken to a place where... What is our ultimate goal? Is where people can um, get to a state where cultural and religious boundaries just disappear, and only thing that is left is humanity.
0: Wow! So that's tomorrow night at Hampshire, and hopefully many people will be able to go. And um, boy, we are so grateful that you're here this afternoon. Could we talk you into a third song as we leave the
7: program? Of course. Good. 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 (laughs) Urdu ah urdu. we have an urdu <laughs> request okay. okay so actually this song is very important for me also because um um the po- the poetry was written by Kaifi Azmi he was a very famous urdu poet 20th century poet and he belonged to um he was a leftist in india he was uh, you know and and he wrote this poem it's called aurat which means woman and he wrote it for his wife and it is a really remarkable poem because he wrote this in the 50s we're talking about a time when india had not even achieved independence yet and um the poem is long and very beautiful and very powerful and it's it's so potent but um i, I can't translate the whole thing, but I will just translate the chorus because that's the most powerful part of it. And um, basically what he says in the chorus is, Utmerijan saathi chal nahi jay," which means, Rise, my beloved, you should walk beside me. So he sang this for his wife. Uh, and every verse of this poem is about... Uh, saying that women are so much more than the place that they were given in society. Mm-hmm. So he's telling his wife that you are my equal and you should rise and walk beside alongside me, not behind me, you know. So this poem just uh, is it's it's so powerful for me and, and that's the song that
0: Uh, will perform next. Okay, (laughs) wonderful, wonderful. Because there will be such a high at the end of this performance, (laughs) let me um, say my goodbyes now, and then we'll let Niaz uh, finish up this part of the program. Thank you all for coming here this afternoon to uh, see World Canvas and to hear our guests. The next program is on October 18th in the same room, uh, reception ahead of time at 5 o'clock, and the program at 5.30, and it's on journalism and a free press in the age of fake news. So we have a lot of good guests coming from that, and we hope you can join us. You can come back, you bet. Thank you. Thank Thank you so much for having us and speaking with us. Thank you so much.
8: सब के में नहीं से हूं कांपते आंसुओं में